Any day now, it is almost certain that the upper house of councillors of the Japanese diet will finally pass the legislation whereby Japan will be able to practice collective self-defence under the US-Japan Security Treaty. The Mutual Defence Treaty will cease to be just a one-way street. Both partners will come to each other's aid. This long-overdue development reminds me of a headline in the former Yomiuri Daily, which I came across several years ago. Bold 1955 treaty offer to US revealed. Over a story which contained a fascinating revelation that, quote, the Japanese national government in 1955 drafted a treaty that would have allowed Japan to exercise its right to collective self-defense in the Western Pacific, strengthen its defense capabilities, and have the U.S. forces withdrawn from Japan, unquote. Until current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe decided differently, the Japanese government always took the position that notwithstanding the continuing close cooperation between Japanese and American military forces, the famous No War Article 9 of the MacArthur-imposed post-war constitution effectively prohibited Japan's right to collective self-defense. Yet, 65 years after the bloody battle for Okinawa concluded the fighting in Japan in World War II, there are still around 40 to 50,000 American soldiers, sailors and airmen based in Japan whose main purpose is to defend Japan as well as to look after America's strategic interests. So to many outsiders, it probably seems that the US-Japan Alliance and Security Treaty is already collective self-defense. Yet while the U.S. implicitly pledges to come to Japan's aid if it is invaded or attacked, Japan does not yet pledge to do the same thing for the United States. That is what Abe is about to change. So, given the enduring nature of the U.S. military presence in Japan, it must have come as a surprise to many Japanese reading that Yomiuri disclosure that five years before the security treaty revision was finalized in 1960, the Japanese government had proposed a much more radical revision to the Americans. Revision was a hot political issue in the 1950s because the original 1951 U.S.-Japan Security Treaty placed the Japanese in subordinate and Americans in dominant roles, coming as it did so soon after the post-war American occupation of Japan. The Yomiuri story reminded readers that Quote, back in 1955, the United States had overwhelming influence on Japan. The 1951 Security Treaty carried a clause that allowed U.S. forces to police domestic strife in Japan, unquote. That 1955 government became the first controlled by what was then the newly merged Liberal Democratic Party, which was initially led by Prime Minister Chiro Hatoyama, grandfather of Yukio Hatoyama, the man who was to become in 2010 the first Prime Minister of the newly formed Democratic Party of Japan, the DPJ. When the older Hatoyama became Prime Minister in 1954, as the Yomiuri noted, it was widely known that Ichiro Hatoyama advocated independence from the United States, greater Japanese rearmament and amending the Constitution.
But the fact that his government drafted a more drastic replacement security treaty stipulating American withdrawal, well, that was real news. Evidently, the Yomiuri discovered details of the 1955 proposal in diplomatic papers released in Tokyo on July the 27th, 2010, exactly 55 years to the day after the nine articles of the proposed treaty were drafted. Article 2 of the Hatoyama proposed treaty stipulated that the US and Japan would maintain and develop the capacities of individual or collective self-defense to resist armed attack, which by itself would have decreased Japanese dependence on the United States. The proposed treaty covered the Western Pacific, whereas the 1951 treaty had applied only to the Far East. Article 5 contained the proposal that, quote, all the ground forces of the U.S. Army and Navy will complete their withdrawal from Japan within 90 days at the end of the fiscal year when Japan's long-term national defense program is completed, unquote. Since such defense programs are usually spun out over a very long period, that meant that any withdrawal would not necessarily be immediate. The important point is that withdrawal was then stipulated as a medium to long-term aim. Yamiuri reported that the Japanese draft treaty was presented to the then American Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, on August 30th, 1955, in Washington, D.C., by Mamoru Shigemitsu, who was the crippled old man in an old-fashioned top hat, who in 1945 had, at the request of Emperor Hirohito, signed the Japanese surrender on September the 2nd on board the USS Missouri. That was before spending time in prison accused of being a Class A war criminal. In 1955, he had become Japanese Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu, of whom it was said that he knew English well, mistrusted Americans greatly, supported Japan rearming enthusiastically, and feared dependence on the United States totally. At that meeting, Shigemitsu evidently urged renegotiation of the security treaty, but stressed that U.S. forces would only withdraw gradually from Japan. According to the Yomiuri account, Dulles, a widely recognized Republican Cold War hawk in the Eisenhower administration, quote, turned a deaf ear to Shigemitsu, saying the time was not right to begin formal negotiations, unquote. Another account has Dulles saying that negotiations will be possible only when the Japanese were willing to pay for their own military to defend their home islands and also to help the United States abroad. But curiously, the fact that a proposal to discuss the ultimate aim of U.S. withdrawal from Japan figured in the Dulles Shigemitsu discussion does not seem to have been mentioned historically, until the Yomiuri disclosure, that is. Undoubtedly, the Americans would have disapproved of the withdrawal suggestion, but they have concealed that disapproval by silence, by not making an issue of that Japanese proposal, either then or subsequently. But it is equally significant that the Hatoyama administration did not publicize that withdrawal proposal either, nor play up the implied American rejection, again, either then or subsequently. 
It must be assumed, then, that both sides kept quiet about what has now been belatedly revealed out of a concern lest the likely controversy damage the overall US-Japan relationship. Almost certainly, the Eisenhower administration saw the withdrawal proposal in a Cold War light. It was worried by the Hatoyama administration's push to open up trade with Communist China in 1955 and then by Japan's opening of diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union in 1956. Hatoyama's more nationalist outlook was a stark contrast with the staunchly pro-American view of the previous Japanese government led by Shigeru Yoshida. America's immediate worries for the future of the US-Japan alliance were diminished when Nobusuke Kishi became Prime Minister in 1957, negotiated a revision of the security treaty and had it passed by the Diet in 1960. But that the Hatoyama government had been in tune with a sizable segment of Japanese public opinion was borne out by the massive leftist-led demonstrations in 1960 against the revised security treaty, which forced President Dwight Eisenhower to cancel a planned visit to Japan at the very last minute, and also forced Prime Minister Kishi to resign the day after the revised treaty was finally passed in the Diet. Yet the massive demonstrations of 1960 were the storm before the quiet, There has been nothing like it since, though it is interesting that the demonstrators at the Diet building last weekend were prematurely claiming that the long quiet had now ended. The revised treaty, the passage of which caused such a disturbance in 1960, is now 55 years old. No one is talking of ending it. Likewise, as far as it's known, between 1960 and today, there have been no further proposals for setting an ultimate date for the withdrawal of the US military presence in Japan. The continued relevance of the US presidents has been taken for granted. Until, that is, another Hatoyama became Prime Minister after the massive defeat of the LDP in 2010 by the newly formed DPJ. It seems unquestionable that the Hatoyama of 2009 was profoundly influenced by the Hatoyama of 1955. As the Yomiuri pointed out, quote, it could be said that Ichiro Hatoyama's ideas were revived half a century later by his grandson, former Prime Minister Yukio Hatoyama. The younger Hatoyama called for an arrangement under which the U.S. forces would not be permanently based in Japan but would be deployed from the United States in an emergency, unquote. But there was much more to it than that. First and foremost, there was the casual nature of Yukio Hatoyama's politics. Seen from afar, there seems to have been a careful strategy behind Ichiro Hatoyama's attitude. He was reticent about offending the Americans. The same cannot be said of his grandson, who was less inclined to restraint vis-à-vis the United States and in regard to Okinawa. On the one hand, there was the DPJ's never-defined election promise to seek a more equal relationship with the United States. 
on the other hand, Hato Oyama, while supporting the reduction of U.S. forces in Okinawa, seemed completely unaware of the patiently negotiated 2006 U.S.-Japan agreement whereby 8,000 U.S. Marines would have been withdrawn to Guam by 2014. Then, as a result of his irresponsible election support of those in Okinawa agitating against the Marine Air Base at Futenma and a future replacement base at Henoko, that withdrawal has been delayed until 2017 at the earliest, while the closure of Futenma has been equally delayed. Hatoyama talked airily about moving Futema out of Okinawa, even out of Japan, seemingly completely unaware that Futenma's role was to supply air services for the other nine U.S. marine bases in Okinawa. The details of policy were simply not his concern. It is difficult to resist the conclusion that Hatoyama had inherited the dynastic form without understanding the dynastic substance. This is borne out by the conclusion of the one living Japanese politician who knew both grandfather and grandson Hatoyama, 97-year-old former Prime Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone. Writing a few years ago in the Asahi Shimbun, Nakasone provided more fascinating dynastic insight as he admitted that, quote, I had expected Yukio Hatoyama to do fairly well as Prime Minister, but I was let down. I knew his grandfather, former Prime Minister Ichiro Hatoyama, opposing the para-fascist Imperial Rule Assistance Association, he won in the 1942 parliamentary election, even though he was not endorsed by his party, which persecuted him. I had imagined that Yukio Hatoyama would have inherited his grandfather's dauntless spirit, but he turned out to be just a sheltered eldest son of an illustrious family, with a mother providing him with the generous political funds from her own pocket. But disappointed as I was, I think this experience has taught him a valuable lesson. Unquote. Whether it did teach a lesson or not seems doubtful. After a very, very brief premiership, Yukio Hatoyama retired from politics altogether, although he still occasionally makes unhelpful interjections from the sidelines. But he left a most difficult challenge facing his successors. So as Shinzo Abe moves towards at last making U.S.-Japan security ties a more equal relationship, he still has to find a way of making the many U.S. military bases in Okinawa as welcome as are the many fewer U.S. bases in the rest of Japan. <laughs>